Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. Last week, we had reached the end of the plot of Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. All the craziness of the night is resolved in the opening dawn when the lovers who have exhausted themselves and finally fall asleep at the end of the night wake up and are discovered by Theseus and Hippolyta coming out to the woods. And all of the conflicts have been resolved, the conflicts among the lovers. The right lover is finally now shuffled out and attached to the right lover. And all of the contrapuntal subplots of the play are basically resolved into a harmony of one sort or the other at that point. The problem is, if it is a problem, that that point is the end of Act 4. And we have a whole act after that to go. Did Shakespeare miscalculate? Did he run out of material and he is forced to put filler, sort of feel-good entertainment filler, to fill an entire act? Well, if that's the case, it was a recurrent weakness of his because he does this in other plays as well. In Taming of the Shrew, in his earlier work, and not too far in the future, he will do it again with Merchant of Venice. Obviously, you can expect, and your expectation is correct, that I'm going to make a case that it's not just filler, that it is not either just some sort of commercialism where, okay, let's have some feel-good entertainment at the end and hide the fact that basically we don't have anything more to say. We're going to suggest that there's something necessary about this act. It's not without precedent. I asked the same question at the end of the Iliad. The Iliad could have, logically should have ended with the death of Hector and the revenge of Achilles. But in fact, arguably the most important book, the transcendent book of the Iliad is book 24, the very last book, in which extraordinary things happen that confound expectations. That doesn't keep the Iliad from being a work in the tragic context, but nevertheless, something happens that goes beyond mere tragedy. And something is necessary, I would contend, about Act Five of Midsummer Night's Dream, despite the fact that on the surface, yes, it is hilarious comedy. As I said last week, if you get a comic troupe that is good at making people laugh, the material of Act 5 is just side-splittingly funny. And that is part of the point, but not all of the point. This is a festive comedy. That is the term that was given to a whole set of comedies by C.L. Barber back in the 1950s. Comedies, he meant, 
closely associated with certain seasonal festivals. It's, they are festive in terms of their mood, but they are festive in being linked to certain festivals. And we talked last week about, okay, what festival? Obviously, something going on in the first part of the year for Midsummer Night's Dream. And the text plays coy with us. It refuses to pin down which of the possible festive occasions of spring and summer that this might be. Uh, the remark is made, well, Valentine's Day is past. Okay, we now can say it's at least beyond February 14th. Though we will remember the recurrent symbolic colors of red and white, the colors of eros, of romantic and erotic love. Another toss-off joke line, well, no doubt they rose up early to observe the rite of May, in other words, May Day, May 1st. And along with that, since this is a nighttime plot, everything takes place in the night, it would be the, the events of the play would have taken place on April 30th, the night of April 30th, which in certain traditions, namely German, is Walpurgisnacht, when witches hold their Sabbath. And at one point in the text of Midsummer Night's Dream, the fairies are careful to protest, no, we are not spirits of the damned sort. We're not that type of spirits. We're good spirits, honest, trust us. And they are. They make some mistakes here and there, uh, but their intentions are good in the long run. And in fact, they are instrumental in leading to the happy ending. Despite various mistakes as to who to apply the love juice to, nevertheless, on the whole, their use of the love juice to make people fall in love with someone else Without that, the happy ending would not have been possible because the lovers by themselves are perversely neurotic and, like people in real life, determined to fixate on the wrong person. And they have to be turned around by the fairies. Takes a while, but it's been done. And when the lovers wake up, they realize this, though they have no idea that the fairies even exist. We have to remember in Midsummer Night's Dream, <clears throat> there is only one person in the entire cast who is aware that there are fairies in the woods. And that, of all people, is Bottom, the most simple, uneducated, foolish by most points of view, character of them all. He's the one. And he not only sees the fairies, he gets the fate that knights in the old ballads try to seek out. He gets made love to by the queen of the fairies. And he makes that extraordinary speech that I quoted last time. I have had a dream. And tries to describe and utterly fails 
to describe what this dream was, even though in the process he echoes a passage in the New Testament which raises certain spiritual possibilities that we will recur to. But he can't say, and no one in his position would do any better. It isn't simply because Bottom is uneducated and naive. It's because what he has had is truly exactly what he calls it. He says, I will call it a bottomless dream because it has no bottom. This is something so deep that it is unspeakable. That is, the purpose of Act 5 is to circle around that concept. What, out of sight, out even of mind, beyond conception, has been changing things invisibly from behind the scenes. One answer, if you are willing to rest with rational concepts, one answer to that one is the author, William Shakespeare. He has contrived all of this. Like any author, he is in a godlike relationship to his characters and puppeteers them as he will. Shakespeare is fascinated with this idea and in play after play, he shows people being puppeteered, sometimes through the instrument of another character in the play. Northrop Fry gives the name deputy dramatist to this generic type, the Duke in Measure for Measure, and most famously Prospero in The Tempest, are people who contrive the action towards a happy ending through their various powers. The Duke simply by virtue of his office. And when you teach that play, one of the things you point out is the proper way to address a Duke is your grace. Prospero, through his magic, he's a magician. And therefore, akin, a, a magician in the Renaissance commanded elemental spirits, spirits of nature, and that's what the fairies are. So the fairies are deputy dramatists, even if somewhat imperfect ones, though that's also true of the Duke and Prospero. They don't get everything right, and they are fallible, and in Prospero's case, audiences sometimes wonder whether he's even a sympathetic character, but nonetheless work towards the good, work towards the comic resolution. But just saying, well, this is the author's manipulation, leaves the drama really on the level of a kind of clever 20th, 21st century postmodern metafiction. And I think Shakespeare's aware of that dimension of self-consciousness artistically, but I think he goes beyond it. We're a skeptical age, and there are many who doubt whether there is anything that goes beyond it, whether anything that suggests a mystery is simply what post-structuralist criticism calls mystification, and has to be de- mystified. 
But again, this play goes beyond that level of thinking, or at least we can make a case for it and see where it goes. The one thing we know is, okay, it's not Valentine's Day, it's not May Eve. The title suggests Midsummer Eve, which would be June 21st, as we again pointed out last week. The Eve of the Feast of John the Baptist on the 24th of June. That was originally a solstice festival, which in other words is linked to fertility, the changing of the seasons in the early part of the year, linked to the rebirth of nature. The solstice, which is the shortest night of the year, is actually on the 21st, but because of the complexities of calendar changes in the Julian calendar, the feast ends up being on the 24th. And the Feast of John the Baptist, it was decreed to be when it was Christianized, the Feast of John the Baptist, because of a saying by John, he shall increase while I shall wane, he meaning Christ. So that John the Baptist and Christ turn out to be a set of Christian opposites, one increasing while the other wanes. And that brings the question of the reconciling of opposites. Last week we talked extensively about all of the opposites that structure this play, an entire catalog of oppositions. And the happy ending of the play resolves all of them. Whether skepticism, whether it's skepticism of Theseus or skepticism of modern criticism, is willing to believe in such a problematic resolution or not. But the fact is that the conflicts of opposites are reconciled. The lovers, at least, are reconciled enough to go forward towards the multiple weddings. Shakespeare is never satisfied with just one wedding at the end of his comedies. There has to be a whole raft of them. And we get not only the two couples in the central plot, but we have Theseus and Hippolyta flanking them on one side, and the resolved marital difficulties, possibly, of Theseus and Hippolyta on the other side. These are not necessarily resolved to our feminist satisfaction, since the revolting females have been put in their place. Hippolyta had to be defeated in battle as an Amazon by Theseus in order to have that wedding. And uh, Titania has to be put in her place by Oberon, and we're not very satisfied as modern readers by that, but Shakespeare is conservative enough not to brook rebellion on the part of anyone, even though he's perfectly aware utterly aware that Titania has the genuine claim, the claim of the heart, on the changeling boy that she and Oberon are fighting over. Nevertheless, Shakespeare usually resolves conflicts of authority on the grounds of benevolent authority versus tyrannical authority.
He's not democratic and not feminist. There you have it. But the benevolence is real, usually. At any rate, we have multiple weddings. We have to have festivities, and that's Act 5. They cast about in the opening of Act 5. The king calls upon his counselors and says, okay, who's applied? Let's run through the list here and choose something. And the bureaucrats, as bureaucrats will do, pick the safely boring activities that would be respectable but tedious. This play was probably put on in front of Queen Elizabeth, who was probably chuckling at this point because she had to sit through interminable festivities as rulers, including United States presidents, always end up doing simply out of politeness and greasing the political wheels. But Theseus shows a little bit of life in him, a little bit of fire, and deliberately picks the rude mechanicals to the horror of his realistic counselors who know that this is going to be an absolute debacle. They are going to massacre the production of this play about the tragedy of Pyramus and Thisbe, and indeed they do, and it's the massacre that is the hilarity of Act Five. Theseus gives as his reason the line, well, the best in this kind are but shadows. And you can put two meanings on that. A benevolent meaning is, well, it's the thought that counts. We know it's going to be naive and inept, but they mean well, and after all, you know, no performance is really adequate. There's a further inference, however, that links that line to the famous speech on the imagination that almost immediately follows by Theseus, the best in this kind are but shadows, is really skeptically saying all dramatic productions, all works of art are but shadows. They are illusions. And that's their problem. They're good for entertainment. But once that's over, they're just shadows. And that's the gist of the famous speech, that the problem, as he said, and we looked at the speech last week, the lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination all compact. The lunatic in context means religious visionaries, people who see all sorts of miraculous spiritual things and become lunatic crazed by the moon and the imagery of the moon in this play. Lovers and poets go without saying they all are victims of illusion. They actually believe in the illusions of the imagination, and that is their problem. In other words, they take things literally, which makes them akin to the rude mechanicals because that's what the rude mechanicals do. The humor of the Pyramus and Thisbe play, as the rude mechanicals put it on, 
is threefold, three types of things that we laugh at as they go through that play. And uh, one of the things that we are constantly laughing at is the literalism of the people putting it on. The rude mechanicals, uneducated working class, so naive that they are worried that the audience might be as naive as they are and take their generated illusions to be something real. There has to be a lion in the play because in the plot of Pyramus and Thisbe, a lion appears in the wilderness and frightens Thisbe. So we have a guy in a lion costume, but they're afraid that the ladies of the court are actually going to think it's a real lion and faint, and then they're going to be in big trouble. So they're going to have to incorporate a speech into their play. Now, ladies, understand this is not a real lion. No lions were harmed in the making of this play, and so forth and so on. Well, then the lovers met by the light of the moon, so we have to have somebody playing the moon. And finally, the lovers met and conversed by a symbolic wall. They are star-crossed lovers who meet in defiance of the opposition of their parents. It's exactly the plot of Romeo and Juliet, which is the kindred drama that has a sort of a yin-yang relationship, strange but true. And the only time that Shakespeare ever does this with two plays, a strange relationship two sides of a coin to Midsummer Night's Dream. The imagery, including the imagery of the moon and the star-crossed lovers idea. And the Pyramus and Thisbe story comes out of Ovid's Metamorphoses, and there are metamorphoses galore in the woods and echoes galore of Ovid's Metamorphoses. The plot of Pyramus and Thisbe exactly matches the plot of Romeo and Juliet, even though it's not the source of it. It's not the Italian source that Shakespeare was working from, but it runs parallel to it in this haunting sort of a way. Star-crossed lovers, each thinks the other's dead, so they kill themselves, and their blood stains the white mulberry red. Mulberries, we are told by Ovid, were once white, but the blood stained it permanently red. And we have the red and white eros imagery there too. So the literalism of the play goes so far that, okay, we actually have to have a wall. Somebody has to play the wall that they talked through, and he forms a little chink with his hands so that they can talk through it. And the remark is made that this is the wittiest partition I e'er heard discourse. Okay, taking things literally. But in fact, we are invited by the way that the play ends up to take things literally. Because if the reality principle ruled in this play, you would get the outcome of Romeo and Juliet. You would get a tragic outcome. Happy endings, not just of this comedy, particularly of this one. It's unusually outrageous. But of all comedies, and they lived happily ever after. Ah, we all know better. Reality principle 
does not permit the gratification of desire. That's not Theseus, that's Freud in the 20th century in a work like Civilization and its Discontents in which he specifically condemns the imagination in passages that evoke directly, not intentionally, but evoke the kind of rationalistic thinking that Theseus is expressing, calls art a narcosis, a kind of harmless narcosis, says that art is one place where for purposes of letting off some steam, kind of a therapeutic purpose, the reality principle is sequestered off, and wish fulfillment is allowed free reign for the duration of the work of art. But nevertheless, we got to remember, you get in real trouble if you start believing in that type of illusion. Whether you are a religious person, a lover, or a poet. The problem with that sounds very convincing, all the more convincing in our time. Problem with that is that there has been something behind the scenes that has totally transformed the outcome of the reality principle and brought about a happy ending. The fairies are its instruments, as the deputy dramatists in other plays are its instruments. But the real power itself in Shakespeare remains unseen. The New Testament echoes of Bottom's speech suggest something spiritual, but leave it at the at a suggestion. Shakespeare never declares himself ever in any play. He may believe that there is a greater power working for our ends, rough-hew them as we will, in the words of Hamlet, whom we will begin talking about next week, some sort of divinity that shapes our ends. But that's Hamlet speaking, and for that matter, we wonder, where did you get that after it took you five acts to get there, and where did you get that idea, Hamlet? We will talk about that later, but Shakespeare never declares a divinity. He is not Dante or Milton. He leaves it up to a sense of possibility and a mystery. It is a bottomless dream. There is a virtue in declaring a commitment to a specific source of redemption, a source that would use what we call imagination to bring about some sort of transformation in the world. And Dante and Milton are committed to calling it God. Shakespeare, however, you can say he's simply being cautious, especially in an era where making religious declarations on stage could get you prosecuted and certainly censored. But I think it's more than prudence. Shakespeare suggests in the bottomless dream speech that we cannot speak of this. And there is a real virtue to leaving it there and saying there is a mystery, but I can't explain it any more than Bottom does. And those who claim that they can are usually bad news after a point. At any rate, we will return in just a few moments to that mystery. And we go through the humor of the play, 
One source is the literalism of the poor guys putting it on. The second source of humor is the style. We get a lot of dialogue and speech making from the play itself, from the text. And it resembles quite deliberately the excruciatingly naive, corny, clunky plays of the theater before Shakespeare's time. It harks back to the early crude plays of the period of perhaps the 1560s through the 1580s. Very naive plays, the beginnings of English drama, were pretty, pretty crude. And yet, here we go again, Shakespeare seems, instead of just making fun of them, which is what the cast does, the educated court audience in the play makes fun of the corniness of the play as well as the corniness of the actors. Shakespeare's own opinion, however, seems to be rather different from that. And his attitude towards some of the crude and yet perhaps archetypally gripping plays of early drama, early literature, is out of the mouths of babes because he will return to that type of early crude play and directly mimic it in his last four plays, the romances, which are developments of the comedies beyond comedy itself. The name romance is one term for them, but another name that those last four plays go by are tragic comedies, which directly, it sounds as if it is echoing the rude mechanicals, who, that's the third source of humor, the mangling of language by the mechanicals, most of it consists of the confusion of opposites. Here we go again. A tedious brief scene, and especially ones that confound the genres, tragical mirth. Theseus, smiling, says this is like hot ice, and then drops a significant line, how shall we find the concord of this discord? Indeed, that is the question. How shall we do that? And to find the concord of a discord means to reconcile the opposites. And that is, again, according to the reality principle, not possible. Anybody who claims to get beyond the law of non-contradiction is simply guilty of mystification. It is a sleight of hand, it's a con act, and you don't want to be caught in the con. And yet, the end of the play is a union of opposites. Jack shall have Jill, naught shall go ill. Opposites have ceased to be conflicting and are married, are wedded together. The wall is down that parted their fathers is a line from the end of the text of the Pyramus and Thisbe play inside. It's a play within a play, another 
gimmick that Shakespeare is extremely fond of in his dramas. The walls of partition are down, and that may echo a New Testament phrase about the breaking of the walls of partition. At any rate, it is yet another way of speaking of the fact that opposites do not always have to be regarded as either or, even though that is the rational point of view. There are other traditions, the Taoist yin and yang, for example, that suggest that opposites are what William Blake called contraries. They are two, but one. Paradoxical, yet true. And that would include the ultimate opposites of reality and the imagination. How is that possible? And my best way of trying to state it is to suggest that it is nothing that we bring about. We do not reconcile the opposites. That belongs to something that transcends human effort, human understanding, human anything. Something, the unseen, we're returned to this idea of an unseen power acting behind the scenes to bring something about that left to their own devices, the lovers would still be out in the woods bopping around, running into trees and getting themselves confused, hopelessly neurotic about, they don't even know who they do desire after a point. And the other plots as well would be just the normal human mess. But something brings it into a harmony by the end, and that has to be something which does not simply abolish reality, replacing the reality principle with the imagination or dream or desire is not the resolution. In our time, we should know that. Presently in the United States, we have all too many people who are in the process of doing that. Facts, nah. Truth is what I want to believe or I decree. Unfortunately, a lot of these people are running the Republican Party. Nevertheless, these people are out to lunch. When you manufacture reality and say, reality is what I want it to be, that's just as bad, if not worse, as being a prisoner of the reality principle and being a sort of sterile rationalistic skeptic. Neither answer. Those are what Blake called a negation opposites that cancel each other out and we get nowhere. We don't reconcile, but maybe something does, and it would be something that goes beyond the ultimate opposites in the play of waking and dream. When reality is not fixed and becomes dreamlike, strange transformations may happen. And the suggestion is that the ordinary view of things by ordinary consciousness, which says this is this and that is that and there the twain shall meet, is not a final way of looking at things. Reality after a point is 
illusory, dangerous but true. And what you have at the end of the play, when I'm in a classroom, I draw on the board a series of concentric circles. What we are watching, what everyone is watching, is the rude mechanicals. That's the innermost circle of the play, putting on, making a total mess out of the tragedy or tedious mirth of their love plot play. They are being watched by the second circle, the court party, who is indulgently laughing at them in a good-natured way. But they are, in turn, third concentric circle, being observed unseen by the fairies who come in and bless everybody after everyone has fallen asleep at night. That's the very last scene of the play. And we are watching the fairies and all of the concentric circles. The mechanicals play, the court party, the fairies, us. And Puck, in the last speech of the play, the traditional place where an actor comes out and begs for the audience's applause and money, says, who's watching us? We are watching all of those succession of illusions. They're all artistically created illusions. Fairies, court party, mechanicals play, all summoned up out of the imagination. Maybe we are like the Red King's dream in Alice in Wonderland. Maybe something is dreaming us. And that is a powerful notion. It is a notion in Eastern thought where we are dream of a god it is the notion at the heart of some of the mythology of William Blake and of James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, which suggests that all of life, all of history, is one gigantic dream. We will continue next week with Hamlet, a very different type of play, and yet with some interesting linkages, including the idea of not knowing what is real and what is dream or illusion. Next week.